Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Pharmacists by Design members get 30 minutes of CE just for listening to this podcast and answering a couple of questions. Join Pharmacists by Design today and make getting CE easier. Let's listen in as our team discusses this week's Clinical Practice Game Changer. Welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about a a subject that, okay, admittedly is not uh, the most world-shaking subject in the world, but definitely falls into those I've always wondered uh, in the, the, I've always wondered about file. I think every clinician, uh, you know, uh, pharmacist, provider, physician, whatever, has always had a little, in their head, a little file cabinet of, you know, we do this. And I've always, you know, we, we or we tell people this. I always wondered if there was ever any research that tr- that showed that that was true or not. And the problem with this is that most of the time, and this is actually an exception in, in the study we're going to talk about, that the question is interesting, but not so interesting that anyone is going to spend the, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions of dollars to actually do a randomized control trial to answer the question. And so it's one of those, well, I guess we'll never really know sort of things. And, uh, you know, this is what everybody says. So I guess I guess that's just what we're going to talk about. And, and so this is uh, one of those very rare cases where uh, while it's not a true randomized control trial, it is a retrospective analysis or post hoc analysis of a retrospective study that I think may answer, again, not an earth shattering question, but a question I get asked by patients, and I'm sure you do too, is I'm going to have to take aspirin for, you know, my heart. Uh, should I take enteric coated aspirin or non enteric coated aspirin? And I think most clinicians would, would at the, you know, kind of shrug their shoulders and say, I, I don't care really. Um, it, it stands to reason that giving enteric coated uh, uh, aspirin would cause less direct irritation uh, to the stomach lining and, and uh, um, you know, allow the drug to, to, to not cause so many GI side effects. The flip side of that um, has always been with enteric-coated drugs that they, especially aspirin, is that their overall bioavailability may be reduced because, again, aspirin is, is primarily absorbed in the stomach. And so when you uh, uh, have a coating that really uh, basically makes it through the, the stomach into the first part of the, of the small intestine, you might have a decrease in, in, in bioavailability. So even though there may be, and again, this is all kind of theoretical, the, the you know, what makes sense certainly is that, is that, oh, I mean, this is coated, so it's going to be in the stomach. It's not going to, you know, cause local irritation. Um, it may decrease eff- eff- effectiveness as well. And it's something I'm always telling uh, my students is that, you know, it, we always like, well, you know, aspirin causes GI bleeds. Well, it does, but it isn't because the drug itself burns a hole in the stomach. It's because, of course, it's blockade of prostaglandins, which breaks down uh, defense mechanisms the stomach has against the very acid it produces. So, you know, you know, I'm not saying that you can't get direct stomach upset, and that absolutely is something that, that you can get as direct irritation of tissues, but that's not the major way by which gastropathy occurs with aspirin or non-steroidal. So, you know, I when people would ask me a question, I think like most clinicians, I'd be like, eh, you know, whatever you want to do, I don't, you know, I don't really care. You know, I, I suppose if you're having stomach upset right after you take an uncoated aspirin, I guess go ahead and take a coated aspirin, you know, and that, I think that was kind of the, you know, it doesn't, I don't really care one way or the other. So, you know, 
basically, you know, do what you want to do sort of thing. It is worth noting that when I came out of school, buffered aspirin was kind of the big thing. And, and the thought was, again, that when you gave aspirin in, 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 a, in a buffered uh, uh, formulation, that it would, it would basically cause less stomach irritation um, and, and, and allow the patient to take the drug more. And interestingly, those, uh, st- uh, there were some uh, retrospective studies with buffered aspirin that actually thought it was less effective. And so uh, most people kind of abandoned the use of buffered aspirin in patients who are taking and you know aspirin for cardiovascular purposes so you know that that you know that did show that formulation of aspirin may actually matter so again not the most you know thrilling subject in the world but it, it's definitely one of those hey maybe i can take this uh, piece of paper out of the file cabinet in my brain about i've always wondered why and we can answer the question of the efficacy and safety of enterocoded versus uncoated aspirin in patients with cardiovascular disease now this is a secondary analysis of the adaptable randomized control study um, and, and the randomized control study uh, uh, that was known as adaptable, its big job was to take a look not at formulation of aspirin, but at dose of aspirin. So in other words, if you were to you know, send somebody home after they've had a heart attack or a stroke, what dose of aspirin should you send them out on? Should you send them out on 81 milligrams if you're in the United States? Uh, in Europe and other places, it's 100 milligrams uh, or the full 325, what's called full dose aspirin. Which of those uh, uh, you know, should, should you do? And is there a difference in efficacy and safety? And uh, the adaptable study itself had a, was a fairly large study um, and it was completed in, in 2021. Um, and uh, the, the study itself, again, this is just a retrospective analysis of the study itself, is that patients to be in the uh, full adaptable study had to have known uh, cardiovascular disease, which meant an MI, or they had to have cardiac catheterization that showed a greater than 75% stenosis of greater than one epicardial vessel, or they had a history of PCI or cabbage. And then they also had to have other, at least one other criteria of being age over 65, having chronic kidney disease or diabetes, having history of cerebral vascular disease or peripheral vascular disease, or have an EF of less than, than, than 50% or be a current smoker. So they'd have one of those things on top of the known cardiovascular disease. And that was a, a way, I think, to increase patients who are going to be at risk for recurrent events that, that may, have, may show a benefit to uh, aspirin, depending on, on the dose. Uh, these patients were identified through an uh, EHR and then uh, they got contacted to see if they'd be interested in being in the study. And then again, randomized to aspirin 81 milligrams a day versus aspirin 325 milligrams a day. They did not specify that the patients were basically allowed to take the tablets they want because it was a pragmatic study. Uh, they did not, in fact, dictate if it should be coded or uncoded. So that's kind of interesting. Um, they did do electronic follow-up and then uh, they looked over 24 months with a max follow-up of 30 months. The primary endpoint of the overall adaptable study was a composite of all-cause mortality, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. And the composite safety endpoint was uh, major bleeding complications, which then they split into all sorts of different things. The main adaptable study had a total of about 15,000 patients who were followed for about two years. Before randomization, almost everyone was already taking aspirin. So that, that, that's important to note. And that uh, most of them were taking baby aspirin or AUM milligrams. Uh, but after they uh, randomized patients to these, these two different doses, they found that death, hospitalization for MI or hospitalization for stroke 
um, occurred in 7% of patients in the 81 milligram group and 7% of patients in the 325 milligram group. And so there was no statistically significant difference in uh, efficacy between the low and high dose. And then when I took a look at major bleeding in particular, the, 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 the safety outcome they were interested in was hospitalization for major bleeding, which occurred in 0.63% of patients on the 81 milligram group. And 0.6% of patients in the 325 milligram group. So again, not statistically significant. Uh, they do note that in the study though, that a lot of patients with 325 had a higher instance of stomach, uh, you know, local stomach dyspepsia type symptoms and were uh, switched to, to, the, to the 81 milligram tablet as well. So in this, in this pragmatic study called adaptable, they did not find a difference uh, between 81 and 325 as far as efficacy or major bleeding events with the exception of, of more dyspepsia with the higher dose and that a lot of people ended up switching to the lower dose. So that was the overall study. This study, again, was, was a postdoc analysis of that. Um, and, and so what they wanted to do is, is dig a little deeper that when the patients did uh, um, be enrolled in the study and they were, they were looked at in, in their clinic visits and, and stuff like that, they were asked, are you on, are you taking coded aspirin or non-coded aspirin and, and stuff like that. So in this study, they, uh, this analysis, the, the participants were divided into subgroups based both on their randomized aspirin dose and then self-reported aspirin formulation. So enteric-coated aspirin versus uncoated aspirin at the time of, of, of randomization. Uh, there were patients who did not fill out, out that part of the questionnaire-related aspirin formulation or didn't remember what it was, and those patients were excluded from the analysis. It was assumed those patients remained on the same aspirin formulation throughout the entire study uh, as information on enteric coating was not collected after the baseline. So all they looked at was baseline, were they on um, a coated or uncoated aspirin. Um, they wanted, again, to take a look at efficacy and safety. So I think the outcomes were fairly similar uh, between the overall adaptable study and, and this post hoc analysis. Um, and they looked, at, again, at, at primary uh, safety and uh, efficacy endpoints we've talked about. I think they dug a little more into the primary safety endpoints because, again, that's the point of coded versus uncoded. Uh, they did do some pretty complex statistics. And I think the reason for this is they really wanted to try and capture uh, uh, um, uh, covariates and, and confounders that may uh, make up the difference or, or show some of the differences they were going to see. And so they, they did do, you know, again, Cox proportional hazards. They came up with a, a model that took a look at about 12,000 different uh, uh, potential confounders. It was uh, fa fairly in-depth and, and stuff that I would have even considered. So for example, stuff I would have thought you'd see as far as confounders in this, in this model would be, you know, current smoking, you know, gender, age, presence of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, atrial fibrillation, heart failure, that all kind of makes sense. But they even looked at things like what, whether the patient had any access to the internet at use of randomization. So and I would assume that has something to do with health literacy, uh, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, they looked at baseline uh, P2Y drug, and they also looked at BMI, which I thought was really good because there has, has been some question about, you know, in, in very obese patients, is 81 milligrams of aspirin truly enough for those patients? So anyway, uh, you know, this, this very, very complex uh, statistical model where they tried to, to really do, a, a, I think, a pretty good job of, of accounting for for a lot of the uh, of, uh, confounders that you might see in a study like this. Um, and of course, the other problem with the study is since it was a pragmatic study and they didn't give the pills to the patients, there was no real way in the study to assess for adherence, except just asking patients. And so to account for non-adherence uh, in, the, in, the, in the study, they conducted a sensitivity analysis to assess if aspirin formulation modified the association 
um, of the, the, the participant reported aspirin dose or aspirin, the formulation had an association with the, with the participant reported aspirin dose and then went downstream and took a look at the safety endpoints, again, primarily uh, bleeding that we talked about. But they also looked at some of the, the efficacy endpoints as far as all-cause death as well. And from that information, they conducted yet another model with Cox proportional hazards that looked at trying to, to put in adherence as, as one of the confounders. And again, it was pretty complex. Um, and I, again, I, 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 I applaud the, the authors for trying to do this, though, in all honesty, not being an absolute master of statistics. It, 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 I had to read the paper two or three times to, to kind of really, okay, does this make sense? And I'd kind of look up what was going on. And it all did. It just, again, ended up being, you know, again, as you might imagine, a very, very complex model that dealt with not only a wide, wide variety of confounders, but even trying to take a look at adherence in a study where patients were just basically expected to take their own pills, you know. Um, they also did one last analysis where they took to a look at patients on acid-reducing acid medications, because again, the thought would be if, if, if uh, coated aspirin really primarily decreases dyspepsia and you're on a, pro, a proton pump inhibitor or a, or a H2 blocker, what would that kind of decrease that as well? And so again, you know, you, you know I, I, I applaud the, the authors for really trying to come up with, with a model that, that pretty much took up everything as, as they could basically. So, so what did they basically find of the 15,000 patients that were enrolled? in the overall adaptable trial, uh, 10,000 of them, or about 70%, did report the aspirin formulation used. Uh, in that cohort, the average age was 60 years. Uh, about 68% of patients were men. Um, the overwhelming number, uh, number of patients in the study were, were white, though there were uh, other races as well. Um, of that group, about 331 patients had uh, missing uh, data in the de demographics. So they included those people in, in, the, in the overall analysis, but noted that they did not have all the data when it came to, to some of the demographics. Most of this was, was based on where patients preferred not to say, for example, what their race was or, or what their gender was and stuff like that. After they divvied things even more, uh, they found that that aspirin formulation was reported by 5,374 patients in the 81 milligram cohort and 5,304 patients in the 325 milligram cohort with intercorded aspirin used by about half um, in those patients. And as you might imagine, um, about 70% of patients uh, in the study did preferentially use intercoded aspirin versus uncoated aspirin. At the time of enrollment, about a quarter of those patients were taking a P2Y drug, so either ticagrelor or clopidogrel. Um, and uh, the number of patients taking uncoated aspirin uh, was higher than patients who are taking encoded aspirin among current smokers, individuals with diabetes, or a history of bleeding, which I would think would be kind of supply surprising when you recommend a coated aspirin to patients who might have a distant history of, of GI bleed. So I thought that was kind of surprising. So what did they find? Is coated better or worse than uncoated when it comes to efficacy and safety? We will answer that question when we hear from our sponsor, uh, CE Impact. Are you a pharmacist by design? Since we hold a vital position on the healthcare team, it is our responsibility to advance our knowledge and skills so we can provide the best possible care to our patients. Being a pharmacist by design means striving to be the best version of ourselves, not just as professionals, but as individuals dedicated to improving patient outcomes. Learn more about pharmacist by design at ceimpact.com. Join us and begin your journey to being the best version of your pharmacist self. So we are back answering the 
earth shattering question that will, will change medicine forever. <laughs> no, it's kidding. It, but an interesting question nonetheless uh, about uh, is enteric coated aspirin truly safer than, than uh, uncoated aspirin, or is it truly less effective than uncoated aspirin based on this uh, uh, retrospective post-hoc analysis of the adaptable study? What did they find in the study? Uh, that primary efficacy endpoint, again, which was you know similar to the overall study death, uh, uh, hospitalization for, for MI or, or, or revascularization, that endpoint occurred in 6.6% of patients in the 81 milligram group in this smaller cohort and 7.2% of patients in the 325 milligram cohort, and that wasn't statistically significant. But when you drill down to take a look at coded versus uncoded in those, in those groups, similar results were observed with the uncoded aspirin and the coded aspirin. So it, it did not look like there was a difference whether the patients had coded or uncoded aspirin at either 81 or 325 milligrams. It seemed like the numbers were almost identical to each other, and there didn't seem to be a, be a big difference between all of them. And when they broke it down and looked at all-cause mortality, that also did not significantly de, uh, differ across the full cohorts. Um, and the overall uh, hazard ratio uh, for enteric-coated aspirin uh, was 0.88 compared to 0.9 in the uncoated aspirin. So basically, uh, no difference between either dose or coding and non-coding. So that was, I think, kind of interesting. Um, and, and so efficacy, there was really no difference. Now let's talk about safety, which I, again, I think is, is the more important thing. I don't think anyone's ever really accused enteric-coated aspirin, even though it has lower bioavailability of not being particularly effective, right? So they took a look at overall bleeding and, and one of their definitions was overall bleeding that required any blood product transfusion, which they defined as major bleeding. They noted that overall in adaptable, that number was pretty low. But when they took a look at the four cohorts, there was no significant interaction of major bleeding by either aspirin dose or formulation within the enteric coated aspirin group. Interestingly, there was a small but significant increase in major bleeding uh, with, the, with the higher dose, but no difference in major bleeding with the uncoated aspirin cohort. So in this study, and again, you always want to be careful when you take a look at a study whose overall results were negative, but the uh, postdoc analysis finds a positive, they did find that higher doses were associated with a slight increased risk of major bleed. Again, um, I'm not saying that's that's the case, but it is kind of intriguing that, that that's something that they found. Uh, again, all GI bleeding, there was no difference in, in the four formulations. And so overall hazard ratios were similar between the four groups, depending on dose and, and uh, coded versus enterocoded. Um, um, they didn't find any difference in other safety outcomes. And there was no significant difference between enterocoded aspirin or uncoated aspirin um, on major GI tract bleeding. And so interestingly, uh, the other big difference they did not find was an increase in, in rates of dyspepsia. And so uh, even though we tell patients routinely to take a coated aspirin if they have stomach upset, it didn't look like there was a change in this analysis of, of risk of stomach upset, whether you had coated or uncoated aspirin. So basically this, this uh, post-hoc analysis of the adaptable study, uh, again, which uh, the overall adaptable study was a large multicenter pragmatic randomized controlled trial. When they dug down with this data to try and look at the, the, the intersection between dose and coated versus uncoated aspirin, they essentially did not find any difference. And so, uh, you know, both both formulations and both doses seem to be about equal to each other as far as as rates of of uh, um, MI rates of, of death rates of hospitalization for MI but also were very similar in rates of um, 
GI bleeds, major bleeds, the, um, and, and uh, it, unlike the original uh, adaptable study, which found that lower doses had a de decreased risk of, of dyspepsia, this study didn't even find that. This study didn't find that there was an, uh, a positive increased risk in patients who had coded aspirin versus uncoded aspirin on the risk of dyspepsia. So you know, what, what, what I kind of walked away from this study showing is that, is that despite kind of the theoretical uh, advantages of coated aspirin that, you know, it, it's, it's that you, you've coated it. So it's not going to, you know, irritate the stomach. You're going to get less dyspepsia, but that, you know, the, the flip side of that is because of its decreased bioavailability, uh, like buffered aspirin before it, it may not be as effective as, 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 uh, uh uncoated aspirin. Uh, really this study basically refutes all of that. It suggests that it really doesn't matter what aspirin formulation you use, um, and almost really what dose you get uh, as far as, as uh, either efficacy of aspirin and cardiovascular disease and, or safety in aspirin and cardiovascular disease. Now, keeping in mind, this was a secondary prevention population, right? So, um, you know, these patients already had a history of cardiovascular disease and should be on sort of, sort of antiplatelet agent. Would this data be translatable to primary prevention? Um, my, tip of, my tip of the tongue is no, because I think the pendulum is kind of swinging away from most patients getting primary prevention for aspirin anyway, uh, that we're starting to realize that the risk of, of GI bleed or, or head bleed in most patients for primary prevention is just about as high as the risk of having a heart attack. So you're really just trading one, one problem for another in those patients. So I'm not sure I would translate this information to primary uh, prevention, but I think for secondary prevention, when a patient comes to you and says, hey, I heard I'm supposed to take, uh, you know, coated aspirin, um, you know, it, is that reasonable to do? Uh, I think it's reasonable to do, but I think if they come to you and say, you know, I've been having a lot of stomach upset in the morning when I'm, when I'm uh, uh, um, uh, taking my aspirin, should I go to coated aspirin? Um, again, you can certainly recommend it because it's certainly not harmful for the patient, but I think it's worth noting that, that uh, at least based on this post-doc analysis, they're not probably going to get a lot of benefit from going to a coated versus uncoated aspirin. Now, I did note that they did do a final uh, analysis taking a look at acid reduction uh, uh, medications and found, probably not to a big surprise, that patients who received either proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers actually had uh, a much less in incidence of, of both a dyspepsia. And then the numbers were so small, they weren't really able to look at a difference in major bleeding that numerically it was smaller, but, but, it, you know, again, what in statistical significance, but I think what you can say is that if someone's having persistent uh, dyspepsia after they're taking their morning aspirin, it's certainly reasonable for them to consider an H2 blocker. I think that would be the easiest and cheapest way to do it. Um, and, and so famotidine might, might be a, a good drug as long as there's not any other issues with that medication that might help. Um, I'm never a fan of proton pump inhibitors being used long-term in patients unless there's a real reason to. Now, certainly if you had somebody who had, uh, was on an aspirin a day and on a DOAC or on an on dual antiplatelet therapy and had other risk factors, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. And I think the, the, the risk of, of GI bleed in those patients is a little bit higher. So I think that might, you know, a proton pump inhibitor might be the way to go with those patients. But I think just taking, a, you know, a baby aspirin a day and they're having just plain old dyspepsia based on this study, um, you know, there's no increase or decrease risk of efficacy or safety. Safety, so they're not more likely to have GI bleeds with coated or uncoated aspirin. Um, and if they have dyspepsia, I think just, just symptom relief of dyspepsia with, with acid-reducing medication seems to make sense. So again, a question I've thought about uh, you know, most of my career is kind of finally answered that, that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and you can really tell your patients to take just about any dose of, of commercially available aspirin and coated or uncoated. 
And uh, it seems to me that that that, you know, any of them is reasonable. So what's the easiest, cheapest way they can get it is probably the most important thing of all. So that's it for this week's uh, version of Game Changers. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Jen here. Be sure to check out our education at CEImpact.com. You'll find it to be your one-stop shop for all the CE resources you need. Become a Pharmacist by Design member today to access it all for free, including CE for this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on Game Changers Clinical Conversations.